And if you have your Bibles, if you'd be opening them to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be picking up in chapter 10, verse 17, and then working our way through chapter 11. This is on page 209 in the Pew Bible, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, would encourage you to open there this morning to be able to follow along and refer back, but also to take that home with you as our church's gift to you if you'll commit to read it. In 1950, Maurice Herzog led an expedition to summit an 8,000-meter peak, Annapurna, in the Himalayas. It had never been done before. All attempts to that point had failed. And so bearing that in mind, at the initial covenanting meeting, before they ever left France to go work their way toward the Alps, one of the men stood up among the group and charged them, this gentleman is the oath which, like your predecessors in 1936, you must take. I swear upon my honor to obey the leader in everything regarding the expedition in which he may command me. Before they ever started, if they were going to go any further as a team, they had to agree to follow the leader. And a part of what makes accounts of great expeditions so engaging to read or to watch on the screen is the way that the tests and trials faced along the way reveal the character of those involved or lack thereof. It's fascinating to hear about courage under fire and the way individuals have risen to the occasion, often sacrificing and suffering much for the sake of the team. And in those moments when great calamity hits and chaos just seems to be a blink away, successful teams depend on strong leadership, even when that leader has to risk standing alone. In the summit of Annapurna, only Herzog and one other man were left with just a few meters to go before they reached the top. But at the end of themselves, the other teammate threatened to turn back under the pressure. He grabbed Herzog and asked him, If I go back, what will you do? And after all they'd gone through, With so many teammates lying incapacitated along the way to lead them to that point at different camps set up along the way, Herzog answered with the prospect of giving up, I should go on by myself. And once he was willing to stand alone, his teammate determined that he would go along with him. According to Herzog's statement in the account that you can read, it's called Annapurna, The die was cast. I was no longer anxious. Nothing could stop us now from getting to the top. The psychological atmosphere changed with these few words, and we went forward now as brothers. Now in our text this morning, we're going to be looking at how Saul became recognized as Israel's first king and the responses that the people had to his leadership. But I want to encourage you to think not just about Saul's calling to be Israel's king, but the Lord's calling on your own life. And then ask the deeper question, who does your life say that you're following as king? 
Before we begin reading verses 17 through 27, let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we ask that you would reveal our hearts to us now as we come to your word, that they would cut us to the quick like a double-edged sword, that we might see who we truly are following. And we ask that if it is anyone or anything other than you, that we might repent, that we might put our faith in Christ as our King and follow him all the way home. We ask it in his name. Amen. In verses 17 through 27 of chapter 10, we see that we are to embrace God's calling. Embrace God's calling. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today... You have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him... He could not be found. And so they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his, own, to his home. Samuel also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Now, back in chapter 7, Samuel had gathered all of Israel together at Mizpah to confess their sins before the Lord. And now, so many years later, Samuel again calls the people back to Mizpah, but this time it's to charge them with sin. The people probably expected that this meeting would be one in which a king would be crowned, given the way that things ended back in chapter 8. But before that happens, Samuel confronts them with the reality of what they have done. On behalf of the Lord, he pulls no punches. The Lord has been nothing but good to them. They owe everything to Him. His reign over them and His leadership of them has been flawless. He had delivered them from the hand of all the kingdoms that had oppressed them, and yet they wanted a king like all those kingdoms. In their foolishness, they had rejected God. They had exchanged holy God as their Savior for a sinful man as their king. They didn't want the king they had, even though he was the king they needed And so God was giving them the king that they wanted to reveal to them the king they really needed. God in His patience and mercy toward His people would use this king, Saul being the first, for their good to a certain degree. 
But it would be far less than the ideal that his leadership among them would have accomplished. And so without rehashing all the same truths we've considered up to this point, I do want to remind us that we do the same thing every time we sin. We have absolutely no justifiable reason to want another king other than God. But when we go against him and his word, we are dethroning him in our hearts. And yet, because our hearts were made to love and serve God, our rebellion against God always ultimately ends up hurting us. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for in order to prove to us just how wrong we are. And that's what he was doing with his people here as the man he'd chosen is revealed by Lot. Now, we already know, if you've been with us following along, we already know who it's going to be. Samuel and Saul already know who it's going to be. Samuel has already anointed Saul to be king on behalf of the Lord. But because our God is a God of order, he also confirms his decision to all of the people so that everyone will be on the same page. Now, here's what we need to keep in mind. The Lord is the one who chose Saul to be their king. There couldn't be any disputing in anyone's mind that Saul was the Lord's choice to be Israel's king. But while it couldn't be disputed, it was opposed. And the first example of this is with Saul himself, ironically enough. Out of the entire nation... The Lord had revealed through the lots that this one man in particular was his choice. And that only confirmed what he had previously revealed to Samuel and Saul. And yet, when they can't find him, they think the Lord is the one who's confused. But the Lord pinpoints exactly where their king is. He's hidden himself in the baggage Now, if you're like me, this reads pretty comically as I envision this. They wanted a man for a king instead of God, and this was the man they got. It's like he built a fort. I've got young children, and so everything is fort building. It's like he takes the suitcases and stacks them on top of each other to play hide-and-go-seek with everyone. The only problem is he's a grown man. He's 40. It isn't comical, it's sad. Saul knew that God had chosen him to be king, but he still hid. At least initially, he refused to accept God's call on his life. Now friends, has God ever called you to do something that you were convinced there was no way you'd be able to do it? Maybe forgive someone who hurt you terribly. Maybe share the gospel with someone who scared you. Maybe control your temper when all your buttons were pushed. Maybe overcome some form of addiction. Have you ever thought to yourself, I just can't do it about anything that the Lord has clearly revealed that He has called you to in His Word? Well, for the record, I'm sure that we all have. 
But if God has called us to something, it isn't humility that thinks we can't do it. It's pride. The problem isn't that we're unable. It's that we're unwilling to depend on the Lord. And like Moses, when God called him to go to Pharaoh, our objections are really just excuses. When we're committed to fulfill God's calling on our lives, it's not because we're looking in the mirror and saying, I got this. It's because we believe somehow, some way, even if we don't understand how, God is going to show His power through our weakness. That's what we've been singing. And yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's a mouthful, but it's good theology. We are called to be a people who embrace our calling out of our faith in Christ and not ourselves. Go read Revelation 21, verse 8, and you'll see that there is no place for the cowardly in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because that form of disobedience results from faithlessness. Isn't it interesting then that it's the men of valor in verse 26 whose hearts are touched by God to help carry out the call of the one He'd chosen? And the, the people as a whole affirm Saul to shouts of long live the king, which we've heard probably in a hundred movies or read about. And this is the first instance recorded in history. But these men in particular adopted serving the Lord's anointed as part of their personal responsibility. They chose to serve Saul because God chose Saul to serve as their king. And their commitment to follow and aid in his leadership was an expression not ultimately of their trust in him, but in their trust in the Lord. There was a respect for the office as king, much like we're called to have for our presidents, regardless of whether or not we agree with them, and our pastors, whether or not they're particularly gifted. But not everyone felt that way about Saul. As Samuel outlined the specifics of what having Saul as a king would look like, which included uh, things that the king would do for the people and things that the people would do for the king, but some rabble-rousers here weren't having it. And one of the things the people expected of their king that we've seen as they've asked for one was that God would use him to save them from their enemies in military victory. That's why there's lots of confusion when the Christ, the Messiah, shows up and they're expecting military victory. That's what they've been used to. But when these worthless fellows, as they're called in the text, sized up Saul, they thought there was no way this tall guy could save them. And what's more, they didn't keep their opinions to themselves. They make a big show of things and refuse to honor his office and God's calling on his life. Now, given the fact that their king was just hiding in a bunch of luggage, we can't say we really blame them for not thinking much of Saul. However, in a different way, they are making the same mistake Saul made. They were focused on Saul and not on the God who chose Saul. And their lack of faith in the one God had chosen to be king revealed a lack of faith in God as king. 
God would be the one saving his people through this king. And so it wasn't a comment about Saul as much as it was a comment about what they thought God could do through him. And in the next section, we see just how wrong they were. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, after embracing our calling, we're called to fulfill our calling by his spirit. Fulfill our calling by his spirit. Pick up in verse 1. When Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you will do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. As Samuel had done when the people first asked for a king, once Saul had been recognized as king, Samuel sent everyone home. Now we don't know why exactly. It could have been due to the need for some time for the nation to transition to this form of government. This wasn't what they were used to. And maybe it was a sort of preventative measure to guard against a civil war breaking out between these two dynamically opposed groups within the congregation. But whatever the reason, the people complied, including Saul, the new king. In fact, it seems that he goes back to life as usual, which I think feels strange on purpose even though it wouldn't stay that way for long. Eventually we have an enemy present itself that the people of Israel need saving from. Enter the stage being set for the king to display God's salvation. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead were actually prepared to surrender before they fought because they knew there would be no way they'd be able to win. It wasn't until the terms of their surrender were given to them that they began looking for a savior. And now other than just being a a very gruesome and despicable image, gouging out their right eyes would have been to basically permanently incapacitate them as soldiers. They were in essence being forced to choose between lifelong slavery and death. 
And either way you look at it, that forecast is not encouraging. But it was at the corner of that kind of desperation that the people appealed to search for salvation from within their nation. It doesn't appear that they, at least on the cusp of looking for help, are thinking about their new king Saul. But the Lord was going to use this opportunity to establish the king he'd chosen for his people. So I think, shockingly, Nahash allows them to comb the land for a savior, which only just shows how little he thought of Israel and their God. In his arrogance, Nahash felt that no one could defeat him. But he was wrong. When word made it to Saul's hometown, which, in case you're interested, happened to have close ties to the people of Jabesh, the people heard the news before their king did, which just goes to show the, the disorder that's present at this time. And Saul's first awareness of it comes from hearing the people weeping. The oppression and calamity that they were facing was great. It was only right that their king would want to do something about it. And the Lord had called Saul to be the nation's king. And now here in the need of the moment, he equipped Saul with everything he needed to fulfill his calling. The language in verse 6 can make your hair stand on end. I picture Saul hurrying over to the commotion from the plow to the people beside themselves in mourning. The sweat on his brow from working in the field gathers into drops as his forehead furrows when he hears the audacity of this Ammonite to afflict God's people. His fingers clench into a fist and he grabs a knife and immediately turns from the people back to the plow and violently slashes his beast to pieces and then shouts orders to a perplexed onlookers that the same awaits their animals if they refuse to fight. Now Saul's angry, but with good reason. We'll see Saul's anger boil for sinful reasons later that he's more known for, sadly. But here it's God's Spirit within him that causes him to respond this way. And much like Peter after Pentecost, the coward who hid with the luggage is long gone. And now the Spirit gave Saul the courage to face his adversity in a way that unified the people to stand up and fight. And furthermore, just as the Spirit rushed upon their leader to cause him to respond this way, God was at work in the people to cause them to follow Saul's leadership at the end of verse 7. In his first act as king, Saul was unifying the people to do just what they had wanted. To fight and save them from the hands of their enemies. Now the speed, less than a week at this point, probably just a couple days, and the scope of Saul's mobilization, over 330,000 soldiers, is incredible. And it's meant to be clear to us that this is owing to the Lord's intervention on behalf of His people. And so they send news to the besieged city. We're coming for you. We're not going to let you stay there all alone. We're going to get you out of this mess. By midday, you're going to be saved. 
which would have sent the message loud and clear, there is a Savior in Israel. And when the men of Jabesh heard the report, they were relieved. The mourning and desperation were changed in a moment to joy at the expectation of their deliverance. And so they slyly respond to Nahash. Saul covertly splits the forces and strikes between 2 and 6 a.m. And by lunchtime, the threat had been annihilated. It was a total and decisive victory for Israel and by extension for Israel's king. Now friends, there are a lot of things that we have no business being angry about. But there are some things that we should be angry about. Beyond that, to narrow it even further, there are a lot of things that we should be angry about that we have absolutely no power or ability to do anything about. But there are some of them that we are able to do something about. Now, praise the Lord. I understand right now you're thinking, can't we pray? Yes, of course we can. Please don't. I'm not trying to say prayer doesn't matter. But what I am saying, that we should take the nation's response to this one town's affliction as an example. The rest of the people could have said something like, well, we really hate that that's happening to them, but they're over there and we're over here. And we have our own problems to worry about. We can't go out there risking our lives and leave our towns unattended. After all, maybe the men of Jabesh should have been better prepared to face this threat on their own without our help. Does that sound familiar to you? Now, I understand in in an age of globalization on a scale that has never been known, where you can know what's going on in an obscure country that you will never get within 5,000 miles of, there is a uniqueness about the burden that we feel when there are problems in our world. One of the ways that we seek to alleviate the suffering that's happening all over the world is to support and sustain international missionaries who are working not just to alleviate the greatest form of suffering, eternal suffering, by sharing the gospel, but they are also doing all kinds of what we might call humanitarian relief in order to address all kinds of other forms of suffering. But we must not lose sight of our need to be faithfully aware and active against the problems that are facing us in our own lives. Do you know that we are a local church? The local means that God has placed us uniquely here in order to address the specific issues that are facing our people, which includes not just the people within our church, but our own community. Do you care about the problems in our community? Do you know what any of the problems in our community are? I very honestly am still trying to learn them. But I can tell you that already from the outset, poverty seems to be a major problem. Racial tension seems to be a major problem. That's harder to realize as major because it's often not talked about, although everyone in here is white. 
And so we need to, as a people, recognize the problems that are facing us and work to fight them as we are able to do so. And part of that means that we are going to care about problems that are bigger than just our own. We all have problems. We have to balance our budgets. We have the tire that goes flat. We have the kids that won't listen. We all have problems. But God in His wisdom and giving us His Spirit has enabled us to see problems bigger than our own so that we often sacrifice and even enter into different levels of suffering for the sake of ministering on Christ's behalf where He's placed us. I don't have all the answers for you about here's a 10-step way that we're going to fix all of Camden's problems. I'll let you know when I get there. But for right now... I am saying that we as a church need to be aware. We need to listen to the cries for help. And we need to intervene, which is going to cause us to be forced to take gospel risk in many cases. But it will be worth it. Church, we don't need to insulate from our community. We need to mobilize into our community. I'm not the first pastor to say this. I won't be the last. But we need to do this together. Let's continue on. Verses 12 through 15. Rejoice in what the Lord has done. The Lord calls us. He then equips us to fill that call. And then we rejoice in the aftermath of what He's done after, fulfilling, after enabling us to fulfill that call. This is in verses 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel... Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now Saul had invoked Samuel's name and thereby his authority back in that threat in chapter or in verse 7. But otherwise, his leadership has been exclusively Saul and not Samuel. However, it's understandable that the people would go to Samuel about this issue because there would be a conflict of interest given that it is in reference to the people that were opposing Saul. The worthless fellows from back in chapter 10, verse 27, had picked the wrong horse. They thought that Saul couldn't save them, but he had in a big way in his first attempt, and now his supporters were stronger than ever and ready to squash the rebels. So Saul held his peace before, instead of addressing their divisiveness, which just as a side point, probably isn't meant to be taken positively on his leadership. But here, even though the people had addressed Samuel, Saul takes the initiative to deal with the situation. This is just one more sign that the reign of Saul is being solidified, and it also strikes a note of wise leadership in the way he handles it. He expresses that the need of the hour is not to kill someone in order to honor their king, but to rejoice in the king who had saved their lives, namely God. 
Saul's awareness of the Lord's equipping and enabling for the victory is another sign of his development as a leader. Now from the inside, and not just from the outside, he's got a really long neck, are the people looking to him to be fit for their king. And ultimately, this change that's taking place so dramatically, so quickly, is evidence of the Lord's equipping in his life. As Samuel seems to sense that both Saul is ready to be king and the people are ready to reaffirm, to unanimously approve Saul as their king. And so the events of the day have made it clear that the time was to basically have a vote of acclamation, to again affirm the king that had been selected. And so he moves their party from Jabesh to Gilgal and they renew the kingdom by recognizing Saul as the king that the Lord had chosen. Here we have both Samuel as prophet and Saul as king working together in tandem to bless God's people. Friends, it is a beautiful thing when God's leaders and God's people are unified to accomplish God's purposes together. But there's one more component here that shouldn't be overlooked in verse 15. The text says that they also sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and rejoiced greatly. Now our passage this morning opened in chapter 10 verse 19 with the black and white pronouncement from Samuel that the people had rejected God in their heart behind their desire of wanting a king. So I take these offerings and their joy-filled worship here to indicate the people's repentance, their desire for reconciliation. They had wanted a human king to reign over them instead of God, but now they understood that they needed a human king to reign over them on God's behalf. The Lord was the one who saved them through Saul's leadership. And at this very moment, everyone, the king and the people both, are on the same page as they rejoice in God together. Friends, the salvation worked by God through this human king foreshadows the salvation secured by God through the God-man Jesus Christ. You see, we have all rejected God as king in our hearts. We have chosen to go our own way and to ignore His commands. We have rebelled against our calling to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And instead, we have cowardly tried to hide from His presence. But as the greatest expression of love for sinners ever shown, God sent His Son, Jesus, to become a man and live the perfect life that we have all failed to live and to die in sinner's place. Jesus knew that he had come to die under the wrath of God, to drink the cup to its dregs for all the sins his people would ever commit. And yet when the mob came, not to proclaim him as king, but to arrest him, he didn't hide He didn't shrink back from God's will for his life. He embraced his father's call, even unto death. He wasn't afraid of these 
soldiers. He wasn't afraid of standing alone when all his disciples left him. He wasn't afraid of death itself because he fully trusted in his Father. When he was presented before the people by Pilate, the crowd shouted, crucify him and not long live the king. They scoffed at his ability to save anyone since it seemed that he was unable to save himself. But all the same, God worked his people's salvation through the king he'd chosen to reign over his people. In fact, salvation came through the death of one man. Saul granted mercy to those who hated him instead of killing them, but Jesus secured mercy for those who hated them by dying in, his, in their place. As fully man, Jesus was able to die in our place. As fully God, Jesus was able to bear the eternal weight of God's wrath on the cross. But because He was and is holy, and in order to prove that His payment had been accepted, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead never to die again. It's in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that eternal salvation for all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in him has been secured so what about you do you know the great blessing of rejoicing in what God has done not just for others but for you personally has your heart been touched even made new to follow after Christ the King? Or if we watched your life, would we see you balking at His reign, sneering at His authority over you and His power to deliver you from the sin that entangles you? Well, friends, the blessing of a reconciled relationship with God, peace with God, God is offered to you even here right now as mediated through the King if you will receive it by faith. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be glad to talk to you in just a few minutes. And church, just in closing, maybe you've noticed this as we've been singing. And maybe you noticed it even as we come to it in the text. But I think we should be struck with the Bible's repeated emphasis on our need for joy, rejoicing, gladness. How many truly joyful Christians do you know? The ones that you're around and just strike you over and over, not just on their good days, but on their bad days, when you know that the week's been a wreck, how many of them strike you with joy? It's not circumstantial, but is rooted in Christ. Now, I don't want to be uncharitable, but I think that number is probably lower than 100% of the Christians we know. But it shouldn't be. There's all kinds of things that try to steal our joy in what God has done. But did you notice, even in what we're singing, 
the reality is our joy can't be stolen because it's rooted in something that has already happened. You can't change the past. And because you can't change the past, if your faith is in Christ, then you can't change the future. And the reality is Christ is coming and He will make everything make sense. He will right every wrong. It's not pie in the sky, hocus pocus. This is the gospel of what God is doing even now through us in this world. And we ought to be trusting in that in a way that it shows up in our expressions, shows up in our demeanor, shows up in the way that we relate to one another such that we're able truly to joyfully enter into suffering. Actually seeking suffering out for the sake of the gospel with joy. Don't you understand that's what Jesus did? He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He knew what he was coming to do before he left heaven. And he sought it out to the glory of God. We often try to pull away from every form of suffering in the name of trying to preserve our joy and secure our safety. But the reality is, so often, our joy is hinging upon not our circumstances being safe, but in our salvation being secure. So then when we hope in God, regardless of everything that's going on around us, that can make us want us to pull our hair out if we have any left, the reality is our hope and joy must be unwavering. So then Christian, embrace your calling. Your calling ultimately as a Christian is to glorify God. And whatever you do, whatever you're about, your life is about Him, not you. And when that thing seems out of reach for you, when you continue to struggle with the same sin struggles that have plagued you for years and you don't feel like you're going to make any progress and it doesn't seem to be working out as you have intended, then don't disbelieve, but believe in the Spirit's enabling who will fulfill you and equip you to fulfill the calling He's placed on your life. Your standard of faithfulness might not be the same as the Lord's, but by His Spirit, He will enable you to stand. And then rejoice in what He has done, not just in the here and the now and the, and the little deliverances and salvations that He's given you, but ultimately being rooted in the supreme, eternal salvation that has been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is where we put our hope. This is where we put our trust. This is where we find our joy and not in this world. So then let's follow this Christ, our King, knowing that though His path leads through suffering, it will take us through the cross. It ends in glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would cause us to hope in Christ, to stake our lives, find our joy in Him, that You would enable us and equip us to fulfill the calling that you have placed uniquely on our lives and our life as a church, and that you would give us wisdom and clarity to carry that leadership out. Pray that you would help me to be a faithful leader of this church as pastor, that you would help me not to abuse my authority, but to follow your authority, and that you would get all the glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.